Talk Recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink. This is Christianity Saturdays. Thank you for listening tonight. And praise Yahweh. This is the last program this year. If we want to pay much attention to the calendar year, I really don't care about it that much. But, but I always try to do a, um, a long program on New Year's Eve. And, and in the past, I've scheduled programs on New Year's Eve, even when I didn't have one, just to give Christian identity people, yeah, you know, the people that listen to my programs and read my website something to do. Because we, we um, Christian identists really shouldn't care about the whole um, silly New Year's celebration, right, that, that's out in the world. And, and um, Dick Clark probably should have died 50 years ago. Okay, I thought tonight that I should do a um, a, a general discussion-type program, and, and it'll help clarify a few things, I hope, for, for some people, that because often I'm misrepresented by others, and, and um, not, not only that, but there are some things that I don't really like to teach that in a setting like this I could talk about. And the things I don't really like to teach are prehistoric and, and um, imagining what the world was like before Adam and, and things like that. But in an informal setting like this, I, I could talk about that as long as people have that caveat, right, that, I'm, that what I'm talking about, it, it doesn't come out of books and it doesn't come out of Scripture, right? And, and that's the kind of guy I am. I'm pragmatic and... Everything that I teach, I, I like to be able to show exactly where I got it from, right? Well, whether it be apocryphal scripture, whether it be scripture, whether it be ancient inscriptions or, or ancient histories. So some of the things I'm going to say tonight, I can't get from anywhere. And, and that's the way it is, because we can't possibly know everything. That's just, well, we don't have everything. It's not all in scripture. There are people that imagined that the world started 6,000 years ago, and, and that's a really um, shallow and, and nearly childish, I think, and, and that might offend some people, but I'm, I'm, um, I've been practiced at that too, right? It, it's a childish view of Scripture, and it's a childish view of, of the creation of God. And, and um, I'll, I'll hopefully the reasons for my saying that will become evident tonight. So I had just done three programs related to the settlement of Europe, Trojan Roman Ju- Trojan Roman Judah, and and the Dorian and Dan and Greeks, the records of of the um, origination of the Dorian and Dan and Greeks, and, and the um, identification of the Phoenicians. So tonight I thought I would just relax and go off the cuff and, and basically try to put them all in perspective and, and talk about the, the our origination as a race and, and what it means and, and um, how we should treat that when we're confronted by pagans especially and, and by the people who despise everything Christian because they see it as Jewish. And, and that's what I plan to talk about tonight, and, and I'm going to go into the new year probably from from maybe in two or three weeks. I'm, I'm not sure yet because I never know what I'm doing on a Saturday until Friday. But um, probably in two or three weeks I'm going to start presenting 
my German origins papers. There's eight of them. Um, the first, that there's six, the German origins classical records in German origins is a six-part series, and, and I have two papers that I consider preliminary to that on the Scythians and the proofs that they are indeed the children of Israel. So, so let me start with a little prehistory, right? You know, we have all of these um, things that we dug out of the ground, Cro-Magnon man, and, and we have um, in, in Europe, Neanderthal man, um, the Andronovo settlements, which are uh, misunderstood on the Russian steppe, and, and um, the corded ware culture, the bell beaker culture, and 50 million other cultures. I hate archaeologists for naming those cultures like that, which really um, only describe findings and, and don't really assist in, in one in, in understanding where they were and, and um, when they were believed to have thrived, right? So, so that can all get kind of confusing. But basically, what we have in, in our findings of Europe and, and the, the word Cro-Magnon man has been abused lately. It's been abused by the scientific and archaeological and anthropological communities. Originally, Cro-Magnon man meant a specific discovery of, of certain skeletal remains of a people that were generally very much like modern Europeans. However, they were larger and they had larger brain cranial capacities, right? And and they were found in France and in southern Germany and, and probably in a couple of other places in Europe, but not much has been found. I, I think off the top of my head, it's like five um, significant findings of skeletal remains and, and a few fragments. I, I think that's about correct. And I always imagined that Cro-Magnon Man would represent, perhaps, and, and let me say that none of this is documented. When I talk about prehistory here, it's not what I teach is truth, because it's conjecture. We can only make inferences and conjecture about things that we don't get out of books and, and that we don't get out of our scripture and, and our ancient histories, right? That's just the way it is. So this is conjecture. I always imagined Cro-Magnon Man to be the fallen angels because they have larger cranial capacities than we do and, and a larger bone structure. Now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. We have this archaeological gap, roughly, and, and scientists have changed the meaning of Cro-Magnon so that they could squeeze it into their evolutionary theory. And, and modern scientists, and I'm talking about geneticists and anthropologists, have changed the meaning of Cro-Magnon and blurred it to mean basically any modern man. And that's a recent trend in science, maybe the last 20, 30 years, that they have done that. And, and that's admitted in the scientific journals. It's admitted that they've changed the meaning of Cro-Magnon. And once they change the meaning of the term, they can misapply it or apply it any way they want. 
And that confuses the common perceptions about archaeological findings. So when I use the term Cro-Magnon, I, I refer to the original um, findings of, of the skeletal remains that were originally labeled Cro-Magnon, which died out about 30,000 B.C., perhaps. And there's a huge archaeological gap in Europe. And there's really no signs of civilization in Europe until about 7,000 years ago. 7,000 years ago is the time of Adam, roughly 7,500 years ago, according to the, the popular reckonings of chronology in the Septuagint. Forget the chronology in the Masoretic text. In the Masoretic text, where the ages of the patriarchs, according to some early witnesses, were changed so that the Jews could um, disprove through their Kabbalistic reasoning that Yahshua was the Christ. In the Septuagint chronology, Adam would be about 7,500 years old. Now, we have Cro-Magnon man and Neanderthal man and, and many other species of, of other races, of what, whether you want to believe they were men or apes or something in between. We have all of these being dug out of the ground in diverse places and dated to a time far older than 7,500 years. But that doesn't, that, that should never bother the identist. That should never bother anybody that has a complete understanding or, or a, at least strives to have a complete understanding of Scripture. Because we know that when Adam was placed into the garden, that there was in the garden already a tree with the knowledge of good and evil. And that must mean a race of people who at one time knew good but who had experienced evil and come to know evil. Evil is rebellion from God. And we're told that these, in the Enoch literature and in places in the New Testament, that the serpent, the dragon, fell from heaven, which to me, what we could, whether you want to perceive that as a literal fall from heaven or as a fall from the grace of God, it doesn't matter. It's immaterial. We're not told anything in Genesis about the creation of the other races. I understand that some people insist that the beasts of Genesis 1.25 have two legs and can talk and walk. You cannot insist that the beasts of 1.25, of Genesis 1.25, had two legs and can walk and talk. All of the early translators, all of the early commentators, all of the early um, interpreters of Scripture, right from the days of the Septuagint, 300 and something B.C., 300 something, 280 B.C., I'm sorry, interpreted Genesis 125 to be talking about the creations of wild animals and four-legged beasts of burden. Genesis 3.1 does not prove that there were beasts in the creation of God that had two legs and could walk and talk. I understand that it says that the serpent was wiser than any beast of the field. 
But what it's saying, since we don't know in Genesis 3, 1, the serpent's really a person yet, what it's saying is that because the serpent is wiser than any of the beasts which God has created, that that is why we're going to call this individual who seduced Eve a serpent. That's what it's saying. It's not saying anything more than that. And, and to insist on that, it is basically to hold an opinion, but it's not a proof. We're not told about the creation of the other races, and we're not told about the fallen angels and where they came from in the book of Genesis. We're only told that when Adam was put here, there was a tree that had known good and had come to know evil. A tree that had the experience, the knowledge of good and evil. In the book of Enoch, in the Enochic literature, we're told, and perhaps that's why this is apocryphal, we're told that these fallen angels had gone out and mixed their seed with every kind. That's how I explain the existence of the other races. But it's immaterial. They're not Adam. They're not us. They could never have a share in our heritage. And that's all that really matters. They could never have a share in our promises. And that's all that really matters. But in anthropology, in what's being dug out of the ground, we find that we have all these people that existed before our race was put here. Now, the evolutionists want to insist that we descended from these people because these people were found in Europe before we are, and we're from Europe, aren't we? Well, no, we're not from Europe. And Europe was empty when we settled it. It can be demonstrated from the classics that Europe was empty when we settled it because the Greek classics, as I outlined over the last several weeks, they show that most of the people who came to inhabit the European continent had come from Egypt, had come from the Phoenicians of the Levant, had come from the islands of the Mediterranean and passed through those islands to get to Europe. I talked last night, last week, two weeks, three weeks ago about the, um, the, Dorian, the Dorian and Danning Greeks. When I gave that presentation, I explained how, and, and I think I touched on this in, in Trojan Roman Judah also, I explained how the Greek writers believed that Minos and, and his brethren came from Crete, that they had originally been in Egypt and came from Crete and made their settlements in Anatolia and, and in Greece, and later on the Minoans made settlements in Italy. When they made those settlements in, in Italy, there was no, um, there was no resistance. There was no resistance to them whatsoever. They never recorded any resistance. They talk about the Phokians and, and the, um, the, the other Ionian tribes. They talk about the Rhodians. They talk about the Phoenicians. They talk about the, the, um, the Romans and the Etruscans. And they talk about how they're spreading out and settling Europe and creating colonies but they don't talk about aboriginal peoples in the places that they're sent to, in their myths, in, in their ancient stories, and in their ancient histories. There's no resistance. If we had a great Celtic 
Northern Europe. And as the Greek, the earliest Greek writers do explain, if that great Celtic Northern Europe was too cold to inhabit, and they all say that, Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, Herodotus says that the land above the, Bar the, the Danube River is vacant, and he's writing in 430 B.C., and he says the land above the Danube is vacant, that nobody's there. And he names a couple of wandering tribes that he, he met along the Danube from, who claim to be colonists of the Medes. So we see people at the earliest times wandering into Central Europe from Asia, where the Medes were, were, were um, established. They all say, all the Greek writers say that the land above the Danube is vacant and it's too cold to, to inhabit. Now, not for nothing, but the Germans are the greatest engineers in the world. They're dauntless as a race of people. And they're going to sit in the forests of Germany and freeze their asses off, and Italy is empty. Come on. And Gaul is practically empty. That's crazy. That makes no sense at all. And the Greeks don't come in touch with them until 400 B.C. That's nuts. And the Greeks settle in all these places. The Greeks had made settlements, and the Malaysians had made settlements from 1000 B.C. And this is recorded along the Danube River and around the Black Sea. And they ran into nobody. There's no resistance to these settlements that's recorded. Why would the Greeks record no resist? That, that's like the, the first English coming over here and, and getting their asses kicked a few times and never writing about the Indians. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine John Smith coming over here and almost getting beheaded but not writing about the Indians? Can, can you imagine the, the, the people of Plymouth Colony coming over here and, and um, having all these problems with these savage Indian tribes and not writing about them, not saying a word about them? Well, well that's what we have in the Greek histories. The Greeks had, and the Malaysians had made settlements all around the Black Sea and, and all up and down the Danube, and, and that's the birth of the Hallstatt culture. And you had the Thracians, who were mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, and they're in that area also. And the Greeks talk about the Thracians. And they're settling Italy, and by 700 B.C., Italy is Magna Graecia. By the time of the Persian Wars, it's attested to in the histories that there's more Greeks in Italy than there are in Greece. That's where the Italians came from. They came from Greece. But they never write about resistance when they're settling these places. They never write about encountering alien peoples who are hostile to them when they settle these places. And all these records of these settlements are made in the classics. The only people in the Western Mediterranean that are hostile to the Greeks are the Carthaginians, and the Greeks talk about the Carthaginians, and we know that the Carthaginians came from Phoenicia. We know that from many ancient historical records.
Genesis chapter 10. Records the Japetite nations as being the first nations of Europe. It mentions Tarshish in southern Spain. It mentions the Thracians as Thyras, Genesis chapter 10, Tyras, T-I-R-A-S. That's the Thracians. Check your Strong's Concordance. It'll show that. And, and we know they're around, you know, that Slavic land north of Greece. That's where they got their start in, in um, ancient, what we would consider to be Bulgaria today, I believe. It mentions the um, Lydians of Anatolia, Lud, which are a Shemitic tribe. By all accounts, they are the source of the Etruscans in northern Italy. It mentions the, the, the um, Ionian Greeks. And, and it mentions Meshach and Tobal and, and, and the Medes, Mad-Eye. And, and they're the Jepetite tribes that live around the Black Sea. They're the first Aryans in Europe. And they have a history. If we, we want to count, the time of the flood in the Septuagint is about 3200 B.C., So if we count these tribes being migrating into Europe starting from around 3000 B.C., which is the, the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel event, is around 3000 B.C., and, and this, the, the spreading of our race across Mesopotamia and through the Mediterranean, if we count that as 3000 B.C., we don't have any writing in Europe, none, until about 600 B.C. Homer wrote about 600 B.C., maybe 620 B.C. That Now, a lot of people, and I myself also did once, a lot of people dated Homer to a much earlier time, and, and some scholars still do. But since then, I have read the testimony of Archilochus, the Elegaic poet, and... and um, did a little deeper studying into Homer because of that testimony, and it's clear that Homer wrote between 620 and 600 B.C. And, and Archilochus, the Elegaic poet, is known to have lived around and written around 585 B.C., and he testifies to the time of Homer being about a generation before his own. So I believe Archilochus, he, he has some good poems and, and seems like a pretty reasonable fellow, and, and that's the best witness to the time that Homer lived. But even if Homer wrote in 700 B.C., if Archilochus is wrong, which I doubt, that still leaves about 2,300 years of Japhethite presence in Europe, in Spain, in northern Italy, in Greece. And, and we know that the Greeks, that they, that, you know, the histories that they do have told us when they began to make some of their settlements in the Black Sea, and, and up, the, that, up the Danube, and in Italy, and in Marseille. But we don't have really any chronicles of that outside of the testimony of the historians from the subsequent centuries. But for 2,300 years, or 2,400 years, we had Japhethite settlement in Europe and no historical records. And all of these... All of these do not clash with 
the archaeological records of the bell-beaker culture and the corded ware culture and many of the other cultures that the archaeologists date back to as far as 7,000 years ago. So the Bible dates the Jepesite settlement of Europe 5,000 years ago. I don't have a problem with the 2,000-year gap because I know all of the flaws in carbon dating and, and archaeological methods. They are not precise by any means. And there's no doubt that there may have been other Adamic people from 7,000 years ago who wandered off from the area of the flood and made settlements in diverse places before the flood. We can't imagine that all these Adamic people stayed in one place to die in the flood. But what we can imagine is that if, if in fact, any Adamic people did wander off from the main body of our race before the flood, they did not come to any substantial civilization. They are not within our historical purview. Because most, of the, most all of the tribes of European history can be identified tracing them back to the classics or the Bible. The Basques are a question mark, but that's okay. I, I think the Basques are the original Chepetite Tartesians, but that there's no, that, that can, you know, we can't know everything, and that could be up for argument. I'm not going to claim to know everything. I only know what the books that I've read have told me. And we could always read more books. Well, 2,300 years of, of Chepetite settlement in Europe and no histories because the Greeks didn't start writing until about 600 B.C. Well, we have the Bible stories, the histories that we find in the Bible that predate Homer. And we have the stories about the Carthaginian and Phoenician settlements of northern Africa and of Spain and those stories go back. Carthage was founded, according to Josephus, and, and this is quite accurate. And it's accurate because Josephus used as one of his sources the ancient chronicles of Tyre that were translated into Greek by a Greek scholar. Menander of Ephesus, I believe, was his name. Now... I wish I had these chronicles, right? They would have been very much like the books of Kings or Chronicles that we have in our Bible, perhaps even more in depth. Josephus quotes from them at length, and, and these are known to have existed from other sources, but they're lost to us today. Josephus quotes from them at length in his book Against Appion, which was an answer to, to a pagan Greek writer about the age of, of Jerusalem and the religion of the people of Judea. And we know from that that Carthage was founded by the Phoenicians of Tyre about 150 years after King Solomon built the temple. 
We know from that that Tyre was built, the island city was built, about 240 years before Solomon built the temple. We know from the Greek histories that they really didn't have much of an much of a um, they didn't have much freedom to sail the Western Mediterranean, so they made up stories about sea monsters. But it was really the Carthaginian pirates. If any Greek ships or Roman ships made it into the Western Mediterranean, they would probably be kidnapped and all their goods stolen, and they were made slaves. So the Greeks made stories of sea monsters to cover for that because they couldn't defeat the Carthaginians. And the Romans eventually had to fight the Punic Wars in order to end Carthaginian hegemony in the Western Mediterranean. But all of the Greek writers, I mean not all of them, but quite a few of them wrote about the Phoenician excursions outside the Pillars of Heracles, which is the Straits of Gibraltar, and how the Phoenicians had been mining tin. They'd been mining tin in Ireland, in Cornwall. They'd been making settlements in Britain and Ireland for a thousand years before the time of Strabo. That brings us right back to the time of Solomon, the ships of Tarshish. They were also mining amber on the northern coast of the Baltic. So the Phoenicians It could be established. We're making full settlements along the coast of Northern Europe. And the British Isles. That is the birth of the Latin culture that we see originated in northern France, according to the archaeologists. The Phoenicians, the Malaysians were Phoenicians. According to the Irish Book of Invasions, and, and this book, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I think it probably the earliest copies that we know to exist that are probably from like the 10th or 11th centuries. I don't write about Ireland, and I don't really like to write about early Britain because there's so many things that are fantastic that don't have good um, that, that don't have good historical corroboration. So I avoid that. But the Book of Invasions says that the first settlers of Ireland were Firbolgs and we don't know much about them. The second people in Ireland were the Tuatha de Danann, the tribe of Dan, about the 7th century B.C. We know that Dan, from our Bibles, basically virtually disappeared from the land of Dan upon the, um, the, the first signs of Assyrian conquest. The Danans weren't taken into captivity. That is when the Tuatha de Danann roughly appear in Ireland. Then came the Millids, 
Well, the Millers are the Phoenicians of Miletus. They settled in Spain. Miletus was a great Phoenician settlement, which was later taken over by Ionians, but the, the, the basic stock of the people and, and its environs in, in ancient Caria, which is that district that, that, that district that occupies the southwesternmost corner of modern Turkey, they were Phoenicians. Sales of Miletus, one of the first so-called great Greek philosophers, was actually, according to Herodotus, a Phoenician by race. The men of Miletus were the Millids of the Book of Invasions of Ireland. They were the third wave of people in Ireland. And there were others later. There are still no Germans. There are no Germans. It's too cold to inhabit north of the Danube. Of course, the Phoenicians were able to make their settlements in northern Europe along the sea and by sea. due to the more temperate climate brought by the Gulf Stream in Britain and Ireland and the coast of France and probably the coast of Scandinavia. And the Phoenician presence in those areas at that time, that accounts for the Bronze Age relics that are being dug out of the ground now. That is not fantastic to think that they only had one more sea to cross after all of that. After all of that, through the Mediterranean and up the Atlantic coast settlement, they only had one more sea to, ca- to cross to get to um, modern-day Norway or Denmark. And they were all already, at, as Herodotus states, mining tin on the shores of the Baltic. I'm sorry, amber. Now, the Phoenicians of... Um, the Danube River settlements and the Black Sea settlements, along with the Ionian Greeks. And the Ionian Greeks weren't totally excluded from Western Europe. At an early time, probably in the 7th century B.C., the Phokians made a settlement which is known today as Marseille in France. That's the furthest west that the Greeks got, right, was Marseille. They never got any further west than that in any of the records. But Marseille became a, um, a, a large settlement and eventually became a large Roman settlement, right? But the Greeks were never displaced from there. While the Malaysians and the Phokian Greeks, which were a branch of the Ionian Greeks, had many settlements around the Black Sea, and they had many settlements along the Danube River. And that is probably the birth of the Hallstatt culture. And that is historical, and it matches up with the archaeological records. We see that, um, and I covered this in Trojan Roman Judah, a great number of Phoenicians, and, and all these people are related in these Greek records, the Phoenicians, the Danans, and the Minoans who eventually founded the settlements in Troy and ruled over all of the people of, of these races because that, that they were probably the tribe of Judah, Zara Judah, mentioned in, in um, 
whose princes, Darda and Kalkal, are mentioned both in Greek records and in the Bible. What we see that they were said to have come from Egypt, they were said to have come from Phoenicia, they were said to have come from the islands and made their settlements in Greece. And they were all Israelites. And as I hope to have established last week, the Phoenicians themselves, they were all Israelites. And we see that these various ways of Jephethites and Israelites and the other Shemites, like the Lydians, who settled, who, who became the Etruscans of Italy, they settled Western Europe and the coast, all the way around to the coasts of Scandinavia and, and the British Isles without resistance. They made these settlements at a time that matches the archaeological record of the various cultures, for the most part, of the various cultures like the, the Latane and, and Hallstatt and Corded Ware and Bell Beaker and, and the other archaeologically identified cultures. This understanding of history, and it's all written right in the Bible and right in the classics, it's important. It's important not to seed ancient history. Are we going to seed American history to Jews and niggers because Jews and niggers have flooded into our nation's cities now. Are we going to let it be imagined? Are we going to accept that George Washington was a Jew or Thomas Jefferson had children with a Negress or, or whatever? Are we going to accept Abe Lincoln's being identified as a Negro? Are we going to accept the Judaization or the Negrofication of American culture and American history. We better not. We better not seed our history. But we're doing it, and, and pagans today readily do it, and a lot of white nationalists readily do it. They reject Christianity because it's too Jewish. When the truth is that Christianity is not Jewish at all. Today, we should reject Americanism because it's too Jewish. So are we going to deny that our ancestors, our recent ancestors, were Americans? Of course not. That would be crazy. Even though we know that today our culture is Judaized, our foreign policy is absolutely Judaized for 100 years. Well, guess what? We should have the same mentality with the ancient world. We should not let the Jew have our heritage. And if we don't want the Jew to have our heritage or the Negro to have our heritage in the modern world where we see they've taken over, well, they took over the ancient world the same way. The Jews infiltrated and took over 2nd century and 1st century B.C. Judea the same way that they took over 19th century Britain and 20th century America. And we shouldn't cede it to them. We have to understand that our Aryan origins are in Palestine and in Mesopotamia. We have to understand that, and we cannot cede that to the Jew or the Arab. 
those biblical stories and the Egyptian stories and the Assyrian inscriptions and the Persian inscriptions, if they were not written by our ancestors, they were written by our ancestors' cousins. And we shouldn't seize that history. We should understand that history. In all the Greek histories, in all the Greek stories, the Etruscans came from Lydia in modern-day Turkey, which was all white at that time. And the Greeks, they spoke to the Assyrians. They understood the Assyrians. They spoke their language. The Akkadian language, which is the language of Assyria, was the lingua franca, the language of trade and commerce, all the way up to the fall of Assyria, by, at the hand of the Scythians and Medes, about 612 B.C. And the Greeks understood their language and talked to them and had discourse with them. And I'll get back to that later. Because I have to talk about the Germans yet. We don't have any Germans yet. The Greek records tell us that Italy settled, the banks of the Danube are settled, the rim of the Black Sea are settled, is settled. The lands around the Black Sea is settled. The, the um, Spain is settled by Phoenicians. Britain and Ireland, where the Phoenicians are mining tin. Now, if Britain was full of Englishmen, would the Phoenicians just be able to walk in there and bring all this tin back to the Mediterranean? That's what I'd like to know. Of course not. But the Phoenician trips to Britain were made with empty ships. And the Greeks described that. And the Phoenicians, for many centuries, were able to outsail Greek and Roman ships that were trying to follow them. And Strabo records that. Because the Phoenicians wanted to keep it a secret where they were getting their tin from. And Strabo records that. So they weren't going to Britain with full ships of goods to trade for tin. They were going to Britain with empty ships and bringing back tin. There's a lot of evidence laced throughout the classics that until the Phoenicians, the Greeks, and the Romans, who came from Troy, by all accounts, there is not one account in any ancient history book that gives any other explanation of the Roman origins. There's not one account in any other history book that gives any other explanation of the origins of the Iberians, except those which tell us that the Iberians are Phoenicians. There's not one account in any other ancient history book that gives any other explanation for the origins of the Danan and Dorian Greeks, except that they came from the islands of the sea into Greece. There's not one account 
in any ancient Greek writing that talks about any of the Greek settlements in Europe being challenged by people who lived there before them, by Germans, by Celts. There aren't any accounts of that because there were no Germans and there were no Celts. The proto-Celts, archaeologists like to split the difference between the proto-Celts and the Celts. The proto-Celts are the Phoenicians, the founders of the Latin culture, the settlers of the coast of northern Europe and the river valleys in northern France, the coast of Scandinavia and Ireland and England. They're the proto-Celts. They brought the Bronze Age with them from Palestine. That's what they did. Carthage was a stopping point. Iberia was another stopping point. It's um, 741 B.C. The Assyrian Empire is expanding for quite some time. It started its expansion about 1200 B.C. And in 741 B.C., it finally makes it to ancient Israel. And by 676 B.C., it takes off all the, almost all of the Israelites and settles them along the Kabor and, and, and several other rivers and in the cities of the Medes, which are in what we know today as far northern Iraq. There are still no Germans at this time, right? There's not one word in any Greek history that any of their settlements on the Danube are ever threatened by Germans until the 4th, 5th century B.C. when the tragic poets begin to write. That's 450 B.C., perhaps 480 B.C., Euripides and Aeschylus. They start writing about the Galatahi, north of the Danube. They call them all Galatahi. Homer wrote about the Chimerians. Homer wrote in 600 B.C., according to Archilochus, as I've already discussed. Homer put the Chimerians in the north, which was true at Homer's time, but that's not where the Chimerians came from. Archaeologists even mention that the Chimerians crossed Anatolia from the east and destroyed what was left of the Phrygian nation. And then they sacked Lydia and threatened Ionia, which is the cities on the coast of Anatolia, before they headed north and crossed the Bosporus into Europe. And that's a pretty commonly known story. And it's known to the Greeks, and the Greeks repeated it. That's where we got it from. Phrygia was the land of the ancient King Midas. Everything he touched turned into gold. I'm sure you've all heard that story. The Thracians of what would be modern-day Bulgaria, I believe, well, the, um, the Phrygians were said to be a colony from Thrace. They were related to the Thracians. They were also um, allies of Troy 
in the, in the Trojan Wars against the Greeks. They lived in what would be central Anatolia. They lived in the exact same land, practically, that later became known as Galatia, but that's a whole different story. These people came from the east, and they were called Chimerians by the Greeks. That's Chimeroi. Chimerians in Greek would be Chimeroi. The Assyrian records, all the, there were many inscriptions that prove beyond all doubt that the Assyrians took away all the Israelites and settled them right where the Bible says they settled them. And they started doing that in 721 B.C. And they were finished for the most part by 676 B.C. And the time of Besar Hadan. And these people were called in all these inscriptions by the Assyrians, the Khamri, or Humri, with a very guttural H. The Greeks called these people Chimeroi, or Chimerians, because they learned their name from the Assyrians, because Akkadian, the language of the Assyrians, was the lingua franca of the time. The Qumri are the same people in Persian inscriptions that were called the Saka. The Greeks tell us everywhere that they had called the Saka Scythians, or that the Saka called themselves Scythians, either way. So we see that the Scythians, the Saka, and the Qumri are all the same people. There's a... Um, a Russian anthropologist that's actually pretty good. He's real close to to, um, to what I believe about the settlement of Europe and, and to what all Christian identists should roughly believe, even if they don't agree with me 100%. I'm not saying they have to. But everything I get comes out of these old books. Well, well there's one Russian anthropologist named Grigoriev, and he traces through a deep study of language and archaeology, he traces the original Indo-European homeland to what he calls Kurdistan. Well, today, I, I wouldn't call the Kurds of today Indo-Europeans or Aryans, right? But we, we know that Kurdistan is the ancient land of Padan Aram, from where Abraham <laughs> had hailed, and to which Isaac and Abraham had sent for their sons for wives. Padanaram is roughly equivalent with much of what we know today as Kurdistan. Grigoriev, this Russian anthropologist, admits that the last people to cross through from Iran and, and um, Kurdistan and into Europe were the Scythians, and they did that about 700 B.C. Grigoriev bases his decisions on language and on archaeology. I know that there's the Andronovo culture and there, there are the Sintasha culture, which Grigoriev writes about. 
Gregoriev proves by matching archaeological findings in Anatolia and northern Mesopotamia that these earlier cultures found on the Russian steppes came from Anatolia and Mesopotamia. And it is obvious that the Scythians were not the first people to cross into southern Russia to go through the Caucasus Mountains into southern Russia and make settlements. That's entirely obvious. And nobody in, in Israel identity should imagine that the Medes and the Assyrians and the Sumerians would sit in Mesopotamia for 3,000 years and never pass the Caucasus Mountains. Never wonder what was on the other side. Of course they did. In fact, in the Assyrian language, the, the word for Eden, everywhere it appears in the ancient inscriptions, is translated step. Wherever the, um, the, the experts at these ancient languages see the word Eden in Assyrian, which is Eden, they translate it as the step. And, and that's surely the garden of Eden is the garden of the step. And that's how we should interpret it, that that is, you know, the step just describes the grasslands of mostly southern Russia and, and, and the lower part of Asia, which stretch all the way to China. But, but it's a very fertile and inhabitable place. Perfect for um, agriculture. So we see that the Cimmerians cross into Europe about 600 B.C. They destroy Phrygia. Even the encyclopedias admit this. The encyclopedias state that they dispersed on the Hungarian plains about 500 B.C. and were never heard from again. That's what the encyclopedias state. But we have the, the, um, the invasions for the first time. For the first time, we have the invasions of Rome and the land of the Etruscans by Gauls, people that the Romans called Gauls, people that the Greeks called Galatahi. And they start invading the lands of the Etruscans about the middle of the 5th century B.C., 50 years later. 150 years after they sacked Phrygia, they're sacking the land of the Etruscans in northern Italy. And in 390, or around 390 B.C., they sack Rome. Now, the Roman historians such as Livy, who gets his records from much earlier historians. The Romans were no idiots. They were writing for a long time. Not all those writings survived, but they were writing for a long time. Claimed to have never known the Galatahi, or the Gauls, as they called them, until they came into the land of the Etruscans and sacked Rome. So we could either believe that these Celts had sat above the Alps for a thousand years and never went anywhere, even though it was much better land south of the Alps, 
or for 2,000 years or for 5,000 years or longer, as some anthropologists insist, as some Euro history clowns insist. Or we could believe that the Galatahi are indeed, just like the Greeks called the Cimmerians and the Scythians, we can believe that the Galatahi are basically the descendants of the Cimmerians and the first Germans. They, as the Greeks tell us, are the first Germans. And they came. They came from the Cimmerians, who crossed into Europe. in the days of Homer. Now, of course, there are some archaeological findings much older in Europe, some bronze, no doubt. But, as I've already illustrated, they were along the Danube, Phoenician, and Ionian settlements for at least 400 years before the Cimmerians got there. So there's no conflict, basically, between anything that you find in archaeology and the things which Christian identists can esteem to be true from out of their Bibles and from the inscriptions and from the records of the Greeks. The Greeks wrote about the Scythians. Theodorus wrote about the Scythians. And he said, and Theodorus, Theodorus of Sicily, his library of history was highly respected all through the ancient world all the way up until the Jews took over academia in, in America in the 19th century. And then he became despised. Well, it's no wonder the Jews would despise Theodore Siculus. Theodore Siculus wrote that the, um, the Scythians originated as the smallest of nations along the Araxis River in, in northern media. Herodotus states, and he places them along the Araxis River in, the northern, in northern media, where one of their first major battles recorded is with the Persians under Cyrus. Herodotus basically states that they spread out from there. Diodorus Siculus tells us that they spread out from there explicitly. And we see that there's a people later called the Sakins in all the Greek histories who are north of the Black Sea, 
And the later Greeks call them Galatahi as they migrate down the Danube River. And the Romans called them Gauls. And they migrated all the way to France, where the first wave of them being the Chimerians had met up with their long-lost Phoenician brethren. There you have the proto-Celts and the Celts. There you have the P-Celts and the Q-Celts. And anthropologists and archaeologists are puzzled about the P-Celts and the Q-Celts. Well, one group settled by sea, and another group came four, five, six hundred years later and met up with them by land. There you have the Aesir and the Vanir of ancient Germanic poetry. One group crossed from Asia, the other group was already there. They had been there for hundreds of years because they came much earlier by sea. The later Scythians that crossed into Europe had a very different language. They had a very different language because they spent a much greater amount of time in Asia with the Persian influence, with the Assyrian influence, and they were the Saxons. They were the the Goths. They were the tribes that are seen as more traditionally Germanic today. But they weren't seen any differently from the, by the ancients. They were still Scythians. They were still Galatahi. The great Gothic historian, and he made some big mistakes, believe me, but the great Gothic historian Jordanus said that it was his ancestors who had fought Cyrus on the Araxis River. Well, he was identifying the Goths with the Scythians of the Araxis River. There is no other explanation in history for the origination of the German people, except for those who follow one of Jordanus' mistakes and imagine that they came from Northern Europe. And they take these few Bronze Age relics that have been found in Northern Europe, which are easily identifiable to a Phoenician presence in Northern Europe at that time, and they try to use that as proof for the origination of the Germans. But all of the Greek records tell us that these German people came from Asia. And all of the German poetry tells us that a great number of these German tribes came from Asia. They didn't come from the north. Yet they have the same racial characteristics as the people that were in Europe before them. That the only way that is appropriately explained in concert with the historical records is that one half of them were Scythian Israelites and the other half of them were Phoenician Israelites who had left by sea and gotten to northern Europe 500 years sooner. 
With the Cimmerians, who settled on the northernmost banks of, of Germany, which is attested to in the classics, and, and had many wars with the Romans all the way down through the first century B.C., and, and always seemed to lose. They just didn't have the organization and the ability to make weapons and logistics that Rome did. Living in the damned forests and swamps of northern Germany, it's no wonder. Which is more proof that, the, that they didn't originate there, because nobody in their right minds would stay in that hellhole for all those years. Especially as cold as it was. Europe coming, Northern Europe coming out of an ice age about 200 B.C., before which it was much colder. It's evident to me that some of these Cimmerians had crossed the channel and became the Kimri of Britain, who appeared there probably between 400 and 200 B.C. But they also were only meeting up with earlier Phoenicians that had settled in Britain. I could probably say a lot more about the settlement of Europe, but it's very clear from the classics, from the ancient inscriptions, that we came from Mesopotamia, that we came from the ancient land of Israel, that we are the Israelites of the Old Testament. Christian identity isn't called Christian identity because we have a feeling that we're the people of Jesus from the New Testament. We have a long-established historical basis for our beliefs. We can't just cede past history to Jews and Negroes. We were the civilizing factor in Egypt we were the civilizing factor in ancient Ethiopia, which even that was white. We were the civilizing factor in the Levant. We were the civilizing factor in Mesopotamia. We can't cede our past history to Jews and Arabs. We can't imagine that the Jews and the Arabs and the Negroes of Northern Africa, Sudan and, and Ethiopia and Eritrea and those places. We can't imagine that they are the descendants of the people who once built great civilizations there. That's just crazy. The same thing with South America. It's not a long trip from Northern Africa to South America and the Yucatan Peninsula. And I can't prove it, but I would guess that that civilization was founded by Phoenicians and Libyans who were white of Northern Africa at a time before history tells us. And they were probably exterminated because they thought that squat monster labor would be good and cheap. That's my guess. I can't prove it, but that's what I would guess. And we have evidence of white founders of civilization in those areas, too. It's in their art, and it's in their, it's in their folklore. 
if we're prepared to let the Negroes and the Jews of today believe that they had a hand in founding this country, then we may as well cede Mesopotamian and, and, and Palestinian history to them too. That's what the pagans, that's what the white pagans want to do. I'm not prepared to do that. We have to defend our history and our heritage. We can't, as I spoke last night about Esau, despise our birthrights. We can't imagine that the Jews could produce the Christian Bible. If the Jews were the Hebrews, the Bible would have been a banking book. It would read like the Talmud. It's very clear from the biblical records that those people were white. That's how they described themselves on the few occasions when they did. It's very clear from all the records of the Greeks that their origination was in Egypt and in Palestine. We can't, well, we have to notice history. We have to be familiar with it. We have to be able to confront the white nationalists and the pagans with it. Because their paganism, that is the ancient religion of Canaan. That's the real ancient religion of the Jews. And we have plenty of evidence that the proto-Celtic people of Ireland and France worshipped Baal. Oh, they called them Bell. Well, well, that's how the um, the, the modern the, the the modern anthropologists would rather spell it, because they try to disassociate the two cultures. But the ancient Celts of Ireland and France, it's well recorded, worshipped Bell. Bell, and so did the Carthaginians, and that's your link. There's all sorts of links that prove our origins. And we fail ourselves and we fail our ancestors when we don't take the time to familiarize ourselves with them so that we can answer the scoffers. You can't imagine that the people that, were the wor that are the world's greatest engineers, The people that built the missiles that we bombed distant cities with, right? The people that built the missiles and, and the rockets that have gotten us, well, well at least into near space. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the moon. The people that built all those satellites and all those cell phones, the people that designed all these computers in such a short time and all of our automobiles and all the other fascinating, amazing things we have, the Germanic people did all that. Nobody else did that. We can't imagine we having these gifts today and nobody else having them that our ancient ancestors sat in the forests of northern Germany for 10,000 years and never built anything. That's just crazy. That's what the Jew would want us to believe. After the Jew has stolen all of our inventions, that's what the Jew would want us to believe. And that's what the pagans would rather believe. That's just disgusting. 
because they don't want to recognize that Christ is our God. I'd like to take some calls, and, and maybe there's things I missed, and maybe there's things I could have made clearer, and, and maybe we could discuss them. But um, when I first heard Christian identity, I didn't accept what E. Raymond Cat and Compare and Swift were saying. I believed what they were saying, but that wasn't enough for me. I had to go read the classics and all the ancient books that I could get my my hands on, and, and I had to prove it to myself. And the more that I read the classics, the more convinced I became that Christian Israel identity is... Not only a true religion, it's the true religion. I hate to call it a religion because it is the truth. There's no doubt in my mind. And the only way it couldn't be the truth is if every one of our ancestors lied about their origination and nobody ever questioned them. Well, which is absolutely absurd. It's absolutely ridiculous that all these Greeks could write all these stories that are basically consistent about our originations. They're basically consistent about the beginnings of Western civilization and European culture. And nobody had an alternate story. Nobody refuted it. Nobody said, oh, we didn't come from over here. We came from over there. Well, nobody did. And they made all these settlements. And there were no other white people in Europe to oppose them. Imagine that. That's because there were no other white people in Europe. That's because the Germans and the Slavs, they were the last people of our race to come into Europe from Asia and to fill Central Europe. And I can't imagine reading a book of the classics. I haven't read them all, but I can't imagine reading one book. I can't imagine I haven't read Plutarch and I haven't read Pliny. But I can't imagine reading Plutarch or Pliny and coming up with anything different. There's no doubt. We are the people of the Bible. That story is the story of our race. Yes, other races were here. They were never included in that story. They are never to be included in that story. It's ridiculous to include them in that story. You may as well include your dog. The white race is the children of God. We should not be ashamed of that. And we should be able to at least explain the outline of the history I have discussed tonight. If indeed we're Christian identists, we should be. A, we we don't have to know all the details. 
We don't have to be able to recite from Herodotus or Thucydides, but we should know that outline and be able to answer the scoffers. Matt, you want to open up Aaron's microphone? I, I don't know if anybody else is on the call, but he'd be a start. Maybe Matt, maybe I put Matt asleep. No, no, I'm here, Bill. <laughs> How you doing, Matt? Uh, not too bad. I'm just wondering if you actually want to take Aaron's call. It's not uh, Aaron Swartz. Uh, it's Oh, okay, yeah, we won't be taking that call. That's, that's the clown, yeah. I, I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, I I do wear trifocals, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's up to you. The, the, the yeah, no, we're not, we're not going to take that clown's call. That's Martin Winstead. It's got to be. Or or, or um, Rosenblatt or one of those other turkeys. Well, one of those other trolls. Right. But I'd like to take some calls. I'd like to make this a long program. We'll see how it goes. I don't know if anybody. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that um, the Varian is on the call. Yeah, I mean, you can open his microphone and see what he has to say as long as he's not a troll. If he's a troll, hang up on him. All right, how are you doing? You're on the call, Marion. Hello. Are you here to, you here to uh, listen, or do you have any questions, contributions? No, maybe he doesn't. Bosing okay. said he was going to call in. Yeah, I, I saw he uh, just came into the chat room. Well, the papers I did the last three weeks, the, the um, Trojan, Roman, Judah, the Phoenicians paper, the Dorian and Dannon's paper, they make lots of, they fill in a lot of details. That They give a lot of um, the evidence of what I'm saying, that they don't, you know, there's always more that could be said, but... um that they're sufficient, that they're, they're, they should be more than sufficient to prove that this the early settlement of Europe and, and the bringing of letters and culture into Europe, which I really didn't even get into tonight, but all the Greeks, all the Greek writers said that their letters and their glassmaking came from the Phoenicians who were actually settled among them. And they weren't Jews because they were all described as being blonde and fair. So imagine that. And, and th th this is throughout. It's not in one Greek writing or two Greek writing. It's throughout the Greek writing. And and the Greek writing, the, the Greek writing actually comes mostly from the Ionians. The Greek histories which survived, for the most part, come from the Ionians. The tragic poets and 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 the um, the, the Elegaic poets and the other poets that survived, whose works survived, came mostly from the Ionians. But they didn't start writing until after 600 B.C. And there's no 
that there's nobody in any Greek piece of Greek literature that says, oh, no, we didn't get our letters from the Phoenicians. We got them from, from the northern Germans, or we got them from the Thracians, or we made them ourselves. There's nobody that disputes the, this story in any of the Greek writing. If it weren't true, how could so many Greeks attest to it and none of them contest it? There is no doubt well, when you actually read all the classics and, and see the parallels between Greek culture and Hebrew culture that we are the children of Israel, that we are the people of the Bible. And hopefully in January and February and March, I'll be, I'll be um, filling in all the details concerning the Germans from my Germanic origins papers, which I plan to present then and, and get them in podcasts. Maybe I'll finally write part seven that Clifton's been waiting for from me for three years. <laughs> hey, Mike, you're on the call. How you doing? Happy New Year, everybody. Hello, Mike. How you doing? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. Just uh, saying hello. Probably a little more to say once I get my kids to bed because, as all of you probably know, they're quite loud. and They're actually being quiet right now, so... <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and mute my mic and uh, give me about 20 minutes here. I'll be back and I'll uh, jump in a little more. I don't know how much of the program pro thing heard that he hear. I, I don't know. Uh, I just, I just got on. Yeah. Well, to me, you know, in order to really truly validate what Christian Israelite identity is all about is making that connection between the the classics and uh, migration patterns of the certain uh, peoples of, of the area. And that, I mean, it, a lot of your writings and my understanding of Greek and Roman culture, which was a uh, quite the hobby of mine when I was a kid. Um, you know, it just, uh, all that really made sense. And when you, if you have that understanding of scripture, like a good Christian should, where you realize that all the prophecies and the, the, the blessings and the curses and the, everything that, that Yahweh promised would happen is only attributed to the white race, and that's quite obvious. Right. Somebody asked in the chat, I didn't want to take questions out of the chat, but somebody asked in the chat if the Minoans and Ionians were related, and according to all the Greek records, the Minoans and Ionians are not related because the Minoans came from Egypt and Syria, and they were related to the Phoenicians and the Danans. And by all the Greek accounts, they came from Egypt and Phoenicia, where the Ionians had been in Greece for, for um, 2,000 years before that, perhaps, or as much as 2,000 years before that. Nestor's on the call, Bill. Yes, let's talk to Nestor. Hello, Nestor. Yeah, but 
Hello. Good evening, guys. Happy New Year's coming up to you all. Hi, um, Mike. Um, since I've been uh, studying this stuff, I've uh, got your literature in that uh, you're influencing our group here in this area, and it's very good. History wasn't uh, all that important in, in our beginning studies, and now we see by, by being able to tie in the cultures and the things back in the days of yore, the, the scripture is starting to, you know, it's starting to become like a living document or a, um, um, it, there's more validity to it. There's more meat to it. And we've been taking other books as well, Joshua and Enoch, and, and applying that and reading that along with scripture. And it's really painting a really neat picture of what's happened in the past and things that typically you'd never, never experience or learn or would have learned. My question is right now that I'm stumped is where does Japheth come into play? Japheth is from the lineage of Noah. He was Caucasian or white or whatever it is. He lives under the tent of Shem. But did Japheth, he wasn't under the cloud. That, 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 well, well, no, that. but 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 I had um I, I had explained earlier in the program the Japetite settlement of Europe first, right? Right, that's that. Right, right. So, that. so okay. right, just like Genesis ten says, the Japet would what would be you know would be enlarged. Well, well, Japet stretched from Spain to the Black Sea. That's a pretty good enlargement, and live in the tents of Shem, and we see that the Shemitic Israelites had taken all that land. And, and um, Jephthah does indeed live in the tents of Shem. Now, now you, you know, we're not told about the fate of the non-Israelite Adamic races specifically, you know, except that Christ tells us that the Assyrians would be in the resurrection. Christ tells us that the Queen of the South would be in the resurrection. The first promise of of restoration to our people is in Genesis 3, 23 and 24, where it says, unless the man, meaning Adam, reach out and grasp the tree of life and live forever. That's the first promise of a redeemer, of a savior, of, of the salvation and restoration of our race. And that covers all of the descendants of Adam. Now, Israel has a special relationship with God that goes beyond that, but all of the descendants of Adam will be in the resurrection. There's no doubt. If you had that, that, that Adamic spirit which Yahweh bestowed on, on Adamic man, and you have that consciousness and the spirit of God in you, you will be, you, you do live forever. God created man to live forever, as it says in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. Yeah. Well, he created us, and once we were created, he put his spirit upon what we were conceived. Uh, okay, so they—they're not considered like the uh, like the Trojans or the the Zoral are being considered the wild olive branches, would they? No, would they because be that that's okay. in, in the relationship of the Romans and the covenant, Paul is talking about the relationship that Israel has with God. Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 2 that the law of God is written in their hearts. Well, that can only apply to the children of Israel as prophesied in Jeremiah. 
Paul tells the Romans that Abraham is their forefather. I understand that the King James only says father in Romans chapter 4. But you could see that Paul's talking about the assurance that Abraham's descendants, his seed, would become many many nations, and Paul counts the Romans among them. That's the whole story of Romans chapter 4. And in all the Greek manuscripts, it says forefather, our forefather, Abraham. And he's making a specifically genetic statement that the Romans descended from Abraham. And they did. Through Zarajudah, through the Trojans. Right. Paul was telling them that throughout the book of Romans. That, you know, church people don't see it because it's the whole book. It's the whole book. It's, <laughs> you can't see the, the individual trees when you, you know, you can't Among see the forest, forest when right. you just look at the tree. You know, that's the way it is. It's the whole book of Romans proves that the Romans are somehow descendants from Abraham. But, you don't see it unless you understand the history. You don't know that. You, you're going to be led into all kinds of error. Paul is only telling the Romans that they have to be grafted in, because the Romans were Israel who never had the law and the prophets, because their ancestors left before the law and the prophets were given. That makes them, that makes them a wild olive tree. Okay. They're still an olive tree, but they're the wild one because they weren't cultivated by the law and the prophets. Mm. Yet they still, as Paul tells them in Romans chapter 2, they still founded a society based on a sense of justice. Even though it wasn't the perfect law of God, it was still a sense of justice and the rule of law. And the Romans did found a society based on those things, and Paul commends them for that because it proves that the law of God is written in their hearts when you try to do that which is just. And that's his commendation to the Romans in chapter 2. That's why he makes it. And they also make Paul, cement that can't be recreated. <laughs> Paul never told Paul never told the um the Corinthians that that they had to be grafted in because they were under the cloud. Their ancestors right, were right. at Mount Sinai. Paul told the Galatians, the law is your schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. Well, well, he told the Galatians that Christ only came to redeem those who were under the law. What sense would that make if they weren't Israelites? They were indeed Israelites because the Galatians are actually a group of the Galatahi who came, who crossed the Danube and made war against Pergamos, and, and the war was not decisive. But the Galatians made a treaty with the king of Pergamos, and they took that ancient land of Phrygia, which from that time was known as Galatia. And that happened about 220 B.C. Okay. So the Galatians were Germans. They, they were Germans. They were Galatahi. They were Germans. There's no doubt. Well, Galatahi is Gaul. Is that the Gaul? Oh, oh, right. He called it, the Greeks called the Galatahi, G-A-L-A-T-A-E, it's usually spelled in, in English versions of the histories. They are the people that the Romans called the Gauls. They're the same so people. Was, so the Vandals, the, the Vandals and the Gauls were the ones who conquered Rome. Right? Well, well, no, well, well, the, no, that was the Vandals and the Goths. Right? Oh, okay, Goths. And, and all right, my the mistake. The Goths are basically, the Greeks called all the Germans Galatahi. 
right? And okay. and, and um, but the the word Galatahi doesn't appear in Greek writing until the fourth century, right? And and um, before that, the Greeks had called them all Sakins and Scythians. But the Greeks weren't familiar with the Galatahi to the West. That's because the Sakins and the Scythians weren't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. There were no Galatahi when the earliest Greek writers wrote. That they that they know when they noticed the, the Germanic tribes coming into Europe. They first called them Cimmerians, and that's because they learned about them from the Assyrians who called them Cymri. So the Greeks called them Cimmerians. Later on, when more Germanic tribes crossed from Asia into into Europe, the Greeks called them Sakins. Why would they call them Sakins? Because in the 5th century, Aramaic became the lingua franca, the Assyrians were destroyed, and the Greeks learned about them from the Persians, who had taken over all the formerly Assyrian lands. So when the Greeks learned about these Germanic tribes from the Assyrians, they called them by the Assyrian name, Kimaroi, after the Assyrian name for them, which was Cymri. A century and a half later, a century later, when more of them came, the Greeks wanted to know who they were and where they were coming from. The Greeks called them Sakins because the Persian name for them was Sake. And it's very clear, all of the Persian inscriptions are bilingual. And there are, and I could show them to you, I have them in a book, and and they're cited in my Germanic origins papers, that the people that the Assyrians called Khamri, that the Greeks called the Khamerians and the Scythians, were called Saka by the Persians, and we know that because the Persian inscriptions were all bilingual. They were made in Akkadian, they were made in Aramaic, and they were made quite often in, in Persian, in Farsi. So, so a lot More of the Persian inscriptions, well, like the, 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 um, the, the famous inscription of the Behistun rock, is trilingual. It's a trilingual. The Persians made a lot of their inscriptions in three languages. They'd say the same thing in three languages. Mm. That's how um, that's how Akkadian cuneiform was was deciphered. We couldn't read it until um, Sir Henry Rawlinson, what was a, a very learned man and the brother of George Rawlinson, a famous British historian. Sir Henry Rawlinson was in the in, in the British Army and on loan to the Shah of Iran. And he saw the Behistun rock, and he was able to use a knowledge of Persian and Aramaean to decipher Assyrian cuneiform. That's how he found out how to read it. It was kind of like the Rosetta Stone for for Assyrian. Right, or the Primer. All right. Can I ask you, can I bring something up from your paper last night? Sure. Would that be okay? Or is that in, this is in regards to the blessing to Jacob. And yes. when Okay. When Isaac was dying, or when Isaac gave the blessing to Jacob, he said that you shall inherit for, uh, um, you see, uh, here I'll read it. He says, now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and abundance of grain and new wine. All right. That's what he told Jacob. Now, when Esau learned that he had been supposedly tricked out of his uh, the blessing, 
he kept crying or lamenting, and he asked Isaac to bless him and bless and 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 uh, uh, Abraham or I'm sorry, Isaac said to him in all but seven trans Bible translations that you will uh, the uh, the here. Let me get King James. It says, "Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and the dew of the heaven." Well. This translation in King James and some of these other, I think, is incorrect. I think the NASB, um, there are six other books, Bibles, that translate, I think, correctly. And they say that uh, that you shall not live in the fatness of the land and away from the dew of heaven. Meaning that he does, because uh, uh, 27, or verse 28 and verse 39 are saying the same thing. They can't get the same blessing, right? Are you still there? Well, well that, you know, I read it to, to see that, you know, it's evident that Jacob's blessing is a lot fuller than Esau's blessing, right? So, but, so but the, he couldn't. The, the, he, go ahead. Well, well, right, but Jacob's blessing is a lot fuller, and, and, and there's a lot more meat to it, and, and a lot better things in it than just that, right? Jacob's blessing right. will rule over your brethren and, and, um, and, and oh, there's yeah, many other There's much more to it. But the way it's right. been laid out in, in reading this, they're both receiving the same, but it can't be. Esau screwed up, and he did not, he didn't get the fatness of the land, and he was away. That wasn't it. It's the opposite. And and like I said, the the NASB says that away from the fertile, uh, the uh, the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew. Jacob's is the opposite. It is the fertility of the land that's your dwelling, and the dew of heaven is for you. Um, so it was just it's something that I learned a while back. And and why do seven Bibles have it showing? I think a more appropriate translation. I don't know. I'm just a rookie at this. It just, they can't be the same. And uh, and Esau, when you read Joshua, when um, when they when Isaac died, and they went to disperse the inheritance, Esau consulted one of Ishmael's uh, counselors and asked him, what, what do I take? Jacob said, you can take, either you can have the possessions of the land, take your pick. And Esau chose the possessions, all the gold, the silver, and all this stuff, and ran off with it. Jacob got the land, which was uh, all right. Let me let, let me talk first. Let me talk about my my my, my methods for preparing for a program, right? But my okay. methods of preparing for a program are, are generally are generally to compare the King James version with the Septuagint, right? I, I can't possibly. When I'm preparing 12, 14 pages of material in one day for a program, for an hour-and-a-half program, compare every translation, right? I just okay. can't do it. I can't prevent. I can't present everything about any one chapter in the Bible. Everything that could possibly be presented in one program is impossible. And I'm not making excuses for myself. It's just the way it is. The, um, my, my method is to compare the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. And read the Septuagint Greek, what which I read, and and um, to see if there's anything that's different in the Septuagint Greek that is actually of note. Do you see what I mean? And and usually, usually, if the sense of the Septuagint 
is drastically different from what the King James gives us from the Masoretic text, I present that during the course of the program. Because that, you know, it's a more original manuscript and it's a significant difference. Mm-hmm. I, do, I don't usually take the time and I don't have the time to compare all of the different translations of the okay. Masoretic text. Right? I just don't do that. If you can bring that to my attention, maybe at a future time, and now that you've brought that to my attention, maybe at a future time I'll be able to address that. But I have to go, when I see differences in the Masoretic text translations, the translations which come from it, I usually go study the Hebrew. I don't read the Hebrew. I could just read the Greek. I don't read the Hebrew, but I can study it and and try to determine what it means and, and see if there's not... Because a lot of Masoretic passages are translated, and, and the translations are very politicized also, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and that's what we always have to be aware of that. Now, I'm looking at the NAS, which is generally a fair translation, and that says in Genesis 27:39, it says, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven above. That it is, I would want to study that Hebrew because that is pretty contorted English, right? It, it, it's very unnaturally spoken, right? Away from the fertility. I mean, we know that the Edomites, they don't, there aren't any Edomite farmers, right? I mean, not too many of them anyway. And, and usually if there are Edomite farmers, they only own the farm and they have Turks and Mexicans doing the work, right? I mean, depending on which part of the world they're in. Yeah, and and I understand that, right? But they have sucked down all the dew from heaven. I mean, they they've been living off the um, the the fat of a damnic man for for two thousand, three thousand, four thousand oh, years. They've there's no doubt. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. And there's okay. you know all of Esau's descendants would be under the curse of Cain, right? Yeah. And the curses of Canaan, because all of his descendants also descended from Cain and Canaan. All of those curses are also upon the descendants of Esau. There's no doubt. So, so it's it's it would have to be. I would have to look at the blessings of Esau, which really wasn't. I really didn't care too much last night to get into the blessings. No, I for understand Esau. that. It's just as as you know, it's just been pounded in my head since I finally woke up. Study to show you so that keyword. Study, study. So when I see stuff, well, well, absolutely. And when I hear There's people no speak, all I want to do is bring it up. It's whether it's a negative or positive, and it's not the intent. It's why is right. it this or why is that? And I understand the format is not sufficient to be able to make this present or to 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 answer these questions. I understand that, but it just I just had to bring it up. Well, well my per- no, it, no, it's a fully legitimate question. It's fine. My purpose last night was to dis- to display Esau's disdain for his birthright and why he really disdained and despised his birthright, right? And that's because he was a race mixer. And, and Yahweh knew that from the beginning. And, and that's his real reason for losing it, because he couldn't possibly inherit it, because he left no legitimate offspring. Yep. Aside from that, you know, it's it's good to um, it, it's good to study the apocryphal literature. I've studied most of the apocryphal literature at, at, to a great extent, but but because of that, I have some caveats, right? And we have to be careful with the apocryphal literature because it's not all equal, and we have to really evaluate it against the Bible. Now, I quote from parts of Enoch. 
And the parts of Enoch that I quote from are the parts that the apostles quoted from. Paul quoted from Enoch. Jude quoted from Enoch. Most of Jude's little epistle is right from Enoch. Peter quoted from Enoch. Right, right? They accepted parts of Enoch as scripture. But one Enoch is not all written by Enoch. It's not even all ancient. Well, there's three One Enoch, right, right, it's actually at least three. I think it might be four or even five books that are compiled and squeezed together and called one Enoch today. So we have to be careful with them, right? Because they're not, not all of those parts of one Enoch even are, are to be considered equal. They're just not. And, and I wouldn't even consider the later parts canonical. But the um, one example is the, um, the three cows, the white cow, the black cow, and the red cow. It's a cute story, yeah, you know, but I don't consider it canonical. That now Jasher, yeah. That now Jasher, Jasher is um, Clifton's quoted it. That there might be one or two places where I've quoted it. I think there is one place where I've quoted it to show something to to, to make an assertion in in my writings. I can't remember it offhand, but there is one place where I have quoted Jasher chapter four, I believe. Well, well, Jasher, you have to be really careful with. I do believe that the book has a core of truth, but there are many parts to Jasher which are very fantastic. Um, yeah, the patriarchal in, 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 yeah, in, yeah, right. in they, they, they go beyond supernatural. They, they, they read like a modern-day comic book. <laughs> and I, I would be very hesitant to cite any of them as canon because they're not quoted anywhere. They're, they're not quoted anywhere in other scriptures. They're not mm-hmm. cited anywhere. Scriptures. The book of Jasher of Chronicles that we see, is it not written in the book of Jasher? That doesn't mean just because we have a book called Jasher today that they were talking about the same book 4,000 years ago, mm-hmm. 3,500 years ago. It's yeah, just not. referenced in Joshua 13, right. uh, 10, and Second Samuel wow. and Second Timothy. So, Right. Now, now there's, so, yeah. um, there are parts to the book of Jasher which are absolutely guaranteed to be spurious. At the end of the book of Jasher, you will see that the writer puts Caesar's invasion of Britain and a couple of chapters before or after puts the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage as having occurred at the same time as the Exodus. Whoa, that's not possible. Well, well, that's what Jasher asserts. And I have a copy of it right here. Maybe I can pull up a chapter. I have my old copy of Jasher right here that I read um, in September 2nd, 1999. And um, I might be able to pull it up from my notes. I don't know if I flip through this. Here we go. The Book of Jasher, Chapter 40. No, I'm sorry, Chapter 90. I can't read Roman numerals, right? The Book of Jasher, Chapter 90. Verse, um, verses 29 and 30 mention Britannia, the inhabitants of Britannia and Ternania, the children of Elisha, son of Javan, and he prevailed over them, talking about the king of Rome. That's absolutely incredible. That's incredible. Latinus, Latinus, the king of, the, the Latin king. And, um... Black Canis II? Yeah. 
Well, well, the Romans did not know Britain until Julius Caesar, right? And there's absolutely no record of any Latin conquests of Britain at all until the times of Julius Caesar. Hmm. So, and, and these aren't recorded in anywhere else but the Book of Jasher. But there's another chapter here that discusses the conquest of Carthage by Rome. And I would have to look for it. So, so there's definitely, and the children of Kittim continued their pursuit of Edom, and they smote them with great slaughter. And Edom became subject to the children of Kittim. Well, that's something that didn't happen until the first century BC. Right there, that there were never any. Um, well, well, except for the time of Alexander the Great. Well, in the 3rd century B.C., but he did not, it's not recorded anyway that he had to slaughter the people of Edom. The, and any slaughter in Edomia of Edomites by the children of Kittim would have happened in the time of the 1st century A.D. with the Romans. But let me say that the children of Kittim is the same terminology that we see used of the Romans that we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They also call the Romans the Empire of the Kittim. So that tells me that Jashua was probably written very late in history. And there's another reference here to the Punic Wars, but I can't seem to find it. But but there's a lot of things in Jashua that are definitely spurious, that don't jive with history, that definitely are not possible in history at the time of the Exodus, which is the time frame that these are placed into Israelite history. Mm. It's just not possible. Well, you wouldn't know any of this unless you understood the history, right? Right. Here, here in Jasher 87, Jasher chapter 87, it's talking about the, the death of Moses. And, and then in Jasher chapter 90, it's talking about Latinus and his invasion of Britain. Well, well, that just didn't happen in the 15th century B.C. That's something that never happened until the 1st century B.C. So you have to understand history, and, and you have to be aware of it when you're reading the apocryphal literature. And, and you also have to purview it all through the lens of, of the New Testament and, and, and this, the, the, the Holy Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, so that's a, a huge caveat, right? And that should apply to all the readings of Scripture. Well, does that that does include then all of the Apocrypha, you know, whether it be Estrada uh, or Tolbert and all these? Um, and what about the uh, the, the Lost Books of Eden? Uh, well, well yeah. All those books. Absolutely. They do all have, the same. They all have to be looked at with a very critical eye. Okay. Uh, okay. This I've quoted recently. I've quoted the the um, what, where the Book of Adam and Eve follows the Masoretic text chronology, but which is impossible. The Masoretic text chronology is impossible. The Book of Jubilees follows the Masoretic text chronology. The Masoretic text chronology is impossible because the Masoretic text chronology there's there's charts that Clifton Emmerheiser made which are on his website, which compare the chronology of the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Under the Masoretic text chronology, Shem dies just a couple of years before Abraham is born. 
And there's absolutely no biblical substantiation for that. Shem was alive. In fact, you know, there's speculation that Shem was the the guy that they paid the the, the tribute to, the Melchizedek or whoever it was. Well, well, that was getting that, that. true or not? But still, he was still alive. No, he wasn't. You were getting that from Christian identity writers who made the mistake of following the Masoretic text chronology. Shem was not alive when Abraham was born. He was, okay. Well, Shem died. 800 years before Abraham was born. The Septuagint chronology is very much in concert with archaeology and history. The Masoretic chronology is impossible. The Masoretic text chronology would date the flood at 2345 B.C. There is all kinds of records that we can establish are from that period in Assyria, in Mesopotamia, in Sumer, in Sumer we know the flood had to happen long before 2345 B.C. You already have Mitzrayim in Egypt in 2345 B.C. It's the time of maybe the fifth or sixth dynasty of the pharaohs by that time. There is no way the flood happened in 2345 B.C. according no, to the Master no, text chronology. The flood in the Septuagint chronology happened approximately 3245 B.C. 3245 B.C. fits very well into what we know from the ancient inscriptions and ancient history. And is much more plausible. Much more plausible. I could never defend, to, I, I could never defend a 2345 B.C. flood in the light of, of the, um, the knowledge of, of Mesopotamia to today's archaeologists and, and Assyriologists and, and people like that, scholars like that have. But I could defend a 3245 B.C. flood against today's archaeologists and, and the people that know about Egypt and, and Assyria and those lands. You say Clifton has this on his website? He's got a timeline? Yeah, he has charts that compare the chronology of the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Is it in one of his teaching letters, or has he got it labeled as something that you could find? Oh, oh no, it's it's right on the um, – there's chronology papers. If you look on his website, it, it's on his, on his current website. I'm redoing his website, right, so I'm confused. On his current website, on the left-hand side, you will see um, Patriarchal Chronology is the menu title. Okay, and, cool. And it's another paper they called Three Days and Three Nights. They're together. It's on the left hand right. left hand menu. Thanks for the lead. Got to study. Anyway, I appreciate yeah. uh, I appreciate what you're doing, and thank you. And uh, Yahweh continue to bless you. Happy New Year. Thank you, Yahweh. Happy New Year. Thanks. I just wanted to make a comment concerning the apocryphal literature. Um, I think to kind of just take that a, a step further, I personally, I, I put more credence in uh, the, the at least the first book of Enoch and the book of Jasher because they're the two apocryphal books who have been quoted from by um, authors of the, the, the New Testament. So, I mean, I, I look at it that way that, you know, that helps validate uh, those two particular books, 
I don't put as much credence in the other apocryphal literature, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't peruse them. I have to see. I'm going to check my um, NA27. I don't remember Jasher being quoted in the New Testament. There are there are um, a couple of dozen passages that that um, are quotes seem to be closer allusions to the Book of Adam and Eve or things that are said there. And the, there's one from the Book of Adam and Eve. There's about a dozen or so from the Testaments of the Patriarchs. There's one from the apocryphal Apocalypse of Elias. There's about a dozen from the apocryphal Apocalypse of Baruch. The Psalms of Solomon, that there are that that is in the um in the Apocrypha and I've quoted it a lot in my Matthew and Mark presentations, right? And, and right. that is um the Psalms of Solomon are quoted several dozen times in, in the New Testament. The book of Enoch is quoted about fifty times. It's quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. The book of Jubilees, there are three allusions in Romans which seem to come or, or, or be similar to things written in the book of Jubilees. But that's only normal for two long books from the same culture in the same time period, right? The Wisdom of Solomon is, is um, many dozens of times. I've quoted from that several times in, in the Matthew and Mark presentations. And, and that's quoted... Oh, at least sixty or seventy times. Quote, quotes or allusions in the New Testament. The Epistle of Jeremy from the Apocrypha is quoted once. Sirach, the wisdom of Sirach is there's about a hundred quotes and allusions, and I've quoted from that often in my New Testament presentations. There's about a hundred quotes or allusions from the wisdom of Sirach, and and the, that wisdom of Solomon and wisdom of Sirach, they're excellent books that should definitely be in our Bible. Baruch and Judas have a few quotes or allusions. Four Maccabees. Tobit has a few. Two Maccabees. Three Esdras. One Maccabees. Three Maccabees. Four Maccabees. And um, that's it. There's no Jasher. That, that, the NA27, this is from the, the Nestle A-Land 27th edition Novum Testamentum Grecae. Loki Sipati Vel Aladati, that means the location of citations and allusions, right? That, that's what that means, and, and that's in Latin. But um, there, there's none from the book of Jasher that I've seen. I, I've never seen, uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm looking through this whole thing, and, and I don't see anything coming from the book of Jasher. I don't know that the book of Jasher is quoted in the New Testament, and... and um, I don't know where you could have read that, Matt. I'd like to. I believe you, but I just haven't seen it. I don't think, I don't accept Jasher as canonical, but I do believe that Jasher is based on something that may have or probably was canonical. I believe Jasher is, you know, there's probably a core of truth in Jasher. It, it definitely does ring true in a lot of places, as if it's coming from a legitimate history that's now lost. But I believe that Jasher has suffered many emendations and interpolations and, and perturbations, right? That, that's my opinion about Jasher. 
that it probably started out as some kind of legitimate book, and it was just destroyed by somebody that made it a huge novel. That, that's what I believe about Jasher. Now, now, other books of the Apocrypha that don't belong, well, well, the Book of Esther doesn't belong in the Bible, so the Apocryphal Book of Esther doesn't belong in the Bible. And Judith does not belong in the Apocrypha. Judith is another, just like Esther, it's another romantic novel based upon a female heroine. And it's also, just like Esther, absolutely unsubstantiable in history. So I reject the book of Judith as, as canonical. That, that's my personal opinion, of course, that and a dollar might get me on a bus someday. I don't think a dollar will get you on a bus anymore, will it? No, no. That well, five that, dollars. That, that just goes to show you the, the actual extent of my apocryphal knowledge. I've read quite a few of the books, but it, it's been a while. I, I, I was probably... Uh, Picking the wrong book when I said Jasher. <laughs> um, Tobit, I believe, is legitimate, and, and um, a lot of people doubt the veracity of Tobit because there's a similar story in Persia, an old Persian folk tale called the Grateful Dead. Imagine that. Well, well, a lot of the scoffers claim that the Grateful that Tobit's based on the, the Persian story, the Grateful Dead. I think it's the other way around. I think the Persian story of the Grateful Dead is probably based on the, the account of Tobit. That's my personal opinion, but and it can't be proven either way. But it can't be proven either way. One, you know, even though most mainstream scholars say Tobit's based on the Grateful Dead, it's very just. It, it's very, it's just as right to say that the Grateful Dead story is based on Tobit, and and they can't prove it either way. But um. Judas and Apocryphal Esther and Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the Dragon, I see, is a highly doubtful story that was probably an invention. And, and that is an apocryphal story related to the life of Daniel, the prophet. Now, Susanna definitely belongs in Scripture. It should be the first chapter of Daniel, I, I believe. And that was probably the event that introduced Daniel to the people as a great prophet. But Bell and the Dragon is a, a silly story, and, and um, it, it's just that. It's a story. It doesn't matter one way or the other. It doesn't really affect doctrine, but it, it's a cute story that probably was made up and doesn't belong in Scripture. That's my opinion of it. Okay, if we don't have any callers, I'm going to end the program. I, I mean, that's if, if there's callers, we, we continue, and if there's no callers... Well, Aaron and uh, Michael are yeah, well, if Aaron and Mike have something to contribute, that would be wonderful. Maybe they could bring me somewhere else. Maybe um, we could talk about something else. Aaron, Mike, I know you guys are here. Hey, Bill. How's it going? It's Aaron. Hello. How you doing? How's it going, Matt? How's it going, the rest of my brethren? Good, good, Aaron. Good. Well, I just want to praise Yahweh for uh, bringing us through another year and giving us a new one. This year's uh, been a great one. It's the year that he opened my eyes up to Christian identity. So it's it's been an excellent, excellent time for me. So I just praise him and 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 using you guys to to help me uh, find the right path. 
Well, that's, that's what good, we're here for. That's and a good topic. You are. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah, it's definitely been a great year. And uh, a good topic. Um, one area that I guess I could take you, Bill, is um, recent discoveries proving Christian identity. You know, that's one thing that I would um, be really interested in hearing what you may be able to bring to the table on that. One thing that I recently have come across that I take a great interest in being that um, my ancestors come from uh, Germany and uh, I also have uh, Scottish in me. So one thing that I came across was the Scottish Declaration of Independence of uh, 1320 that proclaim where they pro- proclaim themselves to be uh, from the tribe of Israel, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just going off the top of my head from what I recall seeing a while back. And uh, just wondered um, what you knew of that. Well, well that's, um, yeah, you know, it was asserted by the Scots that they descended from the Scythians and, and that they came from ancient Israel. And, and that is in the Scottish Declaration of, of Independence. And, and I'm sorry, the, the, the name for that document has escaped me. And, and that's, that, that's, um, that there's a different name for that document, right? Yeah, I, I had actually done a write-up on that in particular, and I can't believe it, it eludes me right now. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. Because I, yeah, I, uh, I researched that like uh, two years ago. A little write-up it's, on. The, it's the Declaration of Abroath. Yes, that's, that's it. Yep, Abroath. And, and, and I shouldn't have forgotten that name, but I did. And, and that... that um. Let me, let me see something here, and maybe we can pull that up. Okay. Most Holy Father and Lord, we know – now, this is um, Robert the Bruce. Yeah, you know, the Scots that are writing this are writing this in the time of Robert the Bruce, and they defeated the, the English, actually. But they're making an appeal to the Pope as Most Holy Father and Lord, right? It, it's definitely Catholic, right? We know, and from the Chronicles and Books of the Ancients, we find that among other famous nations, that among other famous nations our own, the Scots has been graced with widespread renown. They journeyed from greater Scythia by the way of the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Pillars of Hercules and dwelt for a long course of time in Spain among the most savage tribes, but nowhere could they be subdued by any race, however barbarous, Thence they came 1,200 years after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea to their home in the west where they still live today. The Britons they first drove out, the Picts they utterly destroyed, and even though very often assailed by the Norwegians, the Danes, and the English, they took possession of that home with many victories and untold efforts. And as the historians of old time bear witness, they have held it free of all bondage ever since in their kingdom. There have reigned 113 kings of their own royal stock, the line unbroken, a single foreigner. Now, now that could be read a couple of different ways. A lot of people read that to just say, well, the Scots knew that they were the children of Israel. But it could also be read that he's only dating this from the time that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. So, so it's a, it's, that, that's a point of contention, right? 
that that it could be interpreted variously. So so that that's all I'm going to say about that because I'm giving it an honest assessment. I want to believe that the Scots knew that they were the children of Israel, but being well studied in Scripture as they were at the time, they may have only been meaning to use that as an anchor date for when they believed they came from mainland Europe, right? I see. Well, that's still interesting. Yeah, you know, it, it, that, that's the way it's that, that's the way it's critiqued. Okay, they journeyed from Greater Scythia by way of the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Pillars of Hercules and dwelt for a long course of time in Spain among the most savage tribes. But nowhere could they be subdued by any race, however barbarous. Thence they came 1,200 years after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea to their home in the West, where they still live today. That, that's not really a direct claim, the way it's translated there, that they are the children of Israel. They're just using that as an anchor. That, that's the way it's critiqued, but I don't understand the original language either, right? which would also be interesting. Now, there's, to me, there's some confusion here. And I'm going to say that a lot of the people, the, the Scots, the people that we know as Scots don't have a common origin. They don't have a common origin. Half of them came from Ireland, and the other half were called the Picts. Now, Tacitus, the Roman chronicler, he described the Picts as being tall and red-haired, and they were actually called red legs because they had hairy red legs, right? They looked like Esau. I'm, I'm kidding. But th that's probably a description that's very fair to say of Esau, right? I, I mean that he had hairy red legs like a, like, like a, a, a Scotsman. I, I don't think that Esau's hairy legs made him look like like a real goat, right? Well, well anyway... Tacitus described the Scots as being tall and white-skinned and, and having red hair, and he said that that betrayed their origination with the Germans. And I believe that the Picts probably did come from the Scythians. And that's why the Scots of the 13th century believed that their ancestors came from Scythia. But I also believe that a lot of the Scots were well, it's clear that a lot of the Scots, the people of Scotland today, came from Ireland, okay? And that the people from Ireland were the ones that were in Spain. That's my personal opinion that the Declaration of Arbroath actually betrays two different originations for the people of Scotland. One from the Phoenicians who came and settled in Spain, moved on to Ireland, and crossed over centuries later into Scotland. The other from the Germans who came from Scythia and crossed over the channel in, in the north directly to the, the land that we know as Britain and Scotland. That, that's my own personal opinion of why the Scots of the 14th century believed the things that they did. Not that they came from Scythia into Spain and crossed into Ireland, even though there were people that did come from Scythia into Spain. Historically, I can't bring them to Scotland. The people that did come from Scythia into Spain are the Goths and the Alans, right? But they didn't cross from Scythia into Spain until the fifth until the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century, in, in the fifth century um, A.D. 
Now, now there were people that, that there were proto Celts that um that, you know that, that had come from Phoenicia and settled in Ireland and Spain, and then later there were the the, the Galatahi that made it that far. But I don't know if they could really be traced in, into history in Ireland either. I don't know because there's a lot. You know, even the um, the people of Britain and the Gauls of France and the people of Germany, they didn't really write. They didn't leave much writing. And and the Eddas that we have and things like the Nibelungen lead and things like that and the Voluspa and the other Germanic poetry that we have wasn't and Beowulf. None of that was really written down in writing until very late in history. None of it was written down in writing until the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries A.D. So so it's all very late in, in that history. And very paganized. Right. Well, that's all very interesting. I appreciate you going over that. Now, um, I guess kind of taking it from that to other recent um, documentaries and history where our people may have known their true identity. You know, I've heard people go back and forth with um, whether or not our forefathers here in America understood that they were uh, true Jacob Israel and all that. What is your take on that? They understood a, a lot of the a, a lot of the Protestant people really did believe that they were the Israelites, but they didn't believe it because they knew the history. They believed it because they believed God. They believed their Bible, and they knew that they were fulfilling the prophecies that were spoken of the Israelites. Right, and and they believed that if they were the ones that were fulfilling the prophecies, that they must have been the Israelites. <laughs> they didn't know how. They didn't know how. There's, I find no evidence that they knew how. No historical evidence that they knew how. But they simply believed as a matter of faith. God said this, and we're the ones doing it, so we must be them. And that's that, that's a stronger faith than than, than um, anybody I know today. I mean, that, yeah, that's exactly. an incredible faith. Yeah, that's great, and it'll be accounted to him for that as well, uh, no doubt. You know, and uh, yeah, I'm, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, for crying out loud, there we are the only race that has fulfilled the prophecy of becoming many nations, and they understood that. And yes, they did. When you rule, you know, everyone else out and you're the one left standing, it's easy to make that proclamation and come to that understanding, even though, yes, they didn't have a lot of the understanding that we are now given today. So Right. They didn't have the historical nuts and bolts. They just didn't. They didn't have the benefits of, you know, British Israel, I, I mean, they were right for the most part, British Israel, right, until they were corrupted by the Jews. They believed that they were Israel, because of the work of the British archaeologists in Mesopotamia and the Levant. That right. when the record when the Assyrian records were uncovered that connected the Sakans and the Qumri 
to the ancient Israelites who were deported. That gave birth to British Israel. And the British Israel teachers, the early ones, they were right. But the earliest British Israel teachers understood the kindred relationship that the English and the Germans had. And if the English are Israel, well, guess what? The Germans had to be Israel, too, because they all came from the same damn place. Yep. (laughs) But later British Israel was corrupted with Jewish money, Edward Hine, and a whole list of Jew-loving bastards that wrote that the Germans were Assyrians, and the Germans were Huns, and the Germans were wicked, and the Germans were evil, but the Jews are our brothers. And now British Israel is a laughing stock because of that. Yeah, it's sad. Anything they touch, they pervert, and they'll destroy it to uh, to keep the truth from um, coming to our people and, and bringing a, an awakening. It's really sad. And then it's ironic that the ones who have stolen our identity are the ones controlling who is um, – understanding their identity through the history. Well, the, the devil would be released from his pit and go out and deceive all the nations. Mm-hmm. There you have it. It's a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Yep. It's incredible, but but that's the word of God. So, so, right. it's, so, so well, we should be feel blessed because we know it, but it's sweet in our mouths and it's bitter in our bellies. Yeah, and 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 it is a two-sided coin in that sense, to where um, just as our early fathers uh, here in America understood through process of elimination that they had to have been the true Israelite stock through them fulfilling pro- prophecy. The other side of that coin is when you look at history, you can easily see who is the bad fig, who is the Antichrist, and it's been the Jew every time. Absolutely. And, and the early American patriots, they understood. They were all Christians. They read their Bibles. They believed the Word of God. They believed their Bibles. They believed they were Israel because they were fulfilling and producing the fruits of the prophecies of Israel. And they believed, and they were right, that God gave them this land and that it was their land, and they were going to cultivate it and civilize it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Praise Yahweh. What a great heritage we have. And we basically let the Jew trick us right out of it. Because we're sheep. Yeah, we didn't we it's didn't incredible. keep that understanding very long. <laughs> it didn't take long for the devil to move in and steal that out from underneath us. Absolutely. And it's our own punishment. I I see it as our own punishment. Our first great sin was going to war against our own brethren in in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Enlisting to slaughter your white brother. What what greater sin is there? There, There's no greater sin in in the New Testament or or the Old, slaughtering your white brother. Right, because whenever you have the understanding that Yahweh's Spirit dwells within your brethren, whatever you do... Unto them, you're doing unto him. And it's a... Well, well from, that, from that point on, it's been all downhill for America. I mean, we only had about 70 good years. It's been all downhill ever since. Yeah, it has. 
Praise God. You know that that all will change here soon. Well, sooner will. than later. <laughs> we will win in the end. We're guaranteed. We will win in the end, and all, all the Jew trolls on Tatsu will be in the lake of fire. <laughs> <laughs> Won't that be nice? Mike, you have anything to say? You're done with the kids? You're still um, tending to them? I, I know that's a lot of work. I guess Mike isn't even listening. That's okay. Well, we're going to have total silence here. Let's have an hour of silence. We'll still be here in 2013, I guarantee you that. If anybody's still listening to those other talk show clowns after December 21st, 2012, well, I guess they get what they deserve. But you really think that? That's too bad. I I, I had a nice cave picked out and everything out here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right, Guest 13. There weren't a whole lot of good years with Joshua in the land of Canaan, and right away they started accepting the damn Canaanites, and things went downhill from there. There's no doubt. It doesn't take us long to screw anything up. Okay, well, it's 1030. Two and a half hours is long enough. And I thank everybody for listening tonight. And, and praise Yahweh. Uh, I'll be on the ChrisDeGenia.net TeamSpeak chat server for the next um, three or four hours. Maybe you could join us there as long as you're not a troll. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope this was edifying to a degree tonight.